Swift Unwrapped. I'm Jesse. And I'm JP. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about a recurring theme throughout all of Swift development and the uh, all Swift versions so far. uh, And that's about bridging with Objective-C. This is kind of a, I guess eventually we'll be calling it a legacy feature uh, of Swift where we require um, interacting with Objective-C frameworks and APIs from Apple. And so it's this kind of necessary baggage that Swift has to carry for a while uh, until uh, Objective-C usage declines. Right. And inevitably, you know, we'll talk about bridging in general, not just with Objective-C. Um, there is just so much to unpack there. Uh, and like Jesse said, there's been such kind of a push and pull uh, regarding bridging where um, in some certain stages of Swift's development, it's been uh, very implicit and magical. And uh, in in later times, it's actually been very explicit. Um, But there's kind of been a constant shift in that balance, either on one side or the other. And it seems like even uh, at this point, late in Swift 3's development and getting onto Swift 4, the Swift core team's still trying to find that balance, and there are still proposals that are coming out uh, recently and probably more to come that affect this. So it's uh, it's actually a really important topic to, to bring up. Yeah, and to clarify a little bit between bridging and interop, uh, when we talk about bridging, we're talking about importing Objective-C APIs and Swift APIs and being able to sort of reference these classes and members transparently, whereas interop is more about making Objective-C APIs more swifty, where it's kind of a layer on top of those Objective-C frameworks just to make Swift easier to use when talking to Objective-C. Right. So those are really two big sides of the same coin of kind of interacting with uh, things outside the standard library, generally, because this really extends to beyond just Objective-C, right? If you look at Swift on Linux, you're still finding yourself doing a lot of bridging, if not you, the developer, then the compiler, uh, with other types that are deemed bridgeable, things like NSString. You know, the the Swift Corelibs implementation of Foundation is still 100% Swift, but you still need to have this bridging uh, between, say, the Swift standard library array and NS array. Uh, so we still see this bridging, or same thing with string and NS string. We still see this bridging at play even entirely within Swift. And then that doesn't even start to talk about third-party frameworks. Uh, so there's a lot of um, inner workings there that are, are useful to unpack. And that's what this episode's about. Yeah, and a good way to think of it is with bridging, we're, we're talking about interacting with uh, it's it's a much deeper level with the Objective-C runtime and the Swift runtime and how those two um, interact as opposed to, again, interop, which is a more superficial, higher level uh, concept where we're dealing with API refinements and things like that. Right. So 
this has been a common theme ever since the first few Swift betas and Xcode 6 betas. And if if we think back, I know it's it's kind of hard to yeah. think think back two and a half years ago, but um, there was tons of implicit, magical, invisible bridging happening um, in, in the first few iterations of Swift uh, between Foundation and between the Swift Standard Library. And, and if we think back in, in those days, I think it, it really makes sense if Apple were to have swung in one of the extremes, either very implicit magical bridging or very explicit and tedious bridging, it makes total sense that Apple swung in the implicit direction because they were pitching this new language uh, and obviously all of the existing code out there that their users and, and future Swift writers have written was all in Objective-C. So it had to be as seamless a transition, transition as possible. And so it was logical that they swung a little too far in the implicit, magical, invisible bridging direction, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about how terrible Swift would have been to use if if that were not the case. Um, having to explicitly cast between Swift string and NS string and Swift uh, array and NS array, et cetera, like, um, yeah, that, that just would have been a terrible developer experience. People would have hated Swift right off the bat, right? Um, so it, it's it's probably the right move uh, that they that they swung a little too far in the implicit direction. But it's clear that over the last two and a half years as Swift has been developing, that the core team was probably aware that it was a little too far in that direction for the long term, uh, even though it may have been the right thing to do in the short term. And so that's where we've seen a lot of churn, a lot of push and pull uh, regarding bridging over the last two years uh, as Swift went from beta to one to two to three to now four uh, or almost. So, you know, if you think back in the early days, you had um, you had some kind of magical private uh, compiler constructs. Um, uh, it's not really compiler constructs, I guess, as much as kind of runtime constructs where you had the underscore conversion, I believe it was called, method that uh, you could you could implement on any type. And if you did that and you converted to, um, I think it was any other type, then the compiler would even uh, let you, say, uh, implement underscore conversion to string on your um, on your own custom third party type, and that would implicitly bridge to string uh, just by calling that um, that method. Uh, and so this is actually something that was immensely useful. I believe that almost the entirety of the Swift standard library was implemented this way whenever it needed to uh, bridge from array to NS array or the other way around um, or from NS string to string, etc. And uh, I think NS number to a certain extent was implementing this too. Um, and this was even exposed privately, right? You had to do a bit of digging and it wasn't officially supported, but as a third party, if you wanted to have a type that implicitly bridged a string, uh, you could do that. And maybe string is a bad example because I think we've always had the printable slash custom string convertible type right. um, dating back from the very early days. But uh, the same concept applied to um, array, for example, in NS array. Um, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this exactly right. So, uh, Jesse, feel free to correct me yeah. if you remember it differently. But I, I think that was the case. Yeah, yeah. I think that sums it up pretty well. Right. So 
that was the early days of super implicit, super transparent, not transparent actually, super uh, invisible um, bridging. And then from there, we kind of went on to Swift 2 with a slightly different approach, right? Yeah. So actually, I'm I'm looking up uh, Joe Pamer's proposal, uh, SE72, where they fully eliminated that implicit bridging conversions from Swift. And in the introduction, it, it actually goes back to Swift 1.2, uh, which is the... Uh, the version where they actually tried to remove all of that implicit bridging from the language, but it wasn't completely finished and there were some issues with it. And then this proposal was the one to kind of wrap up that remaining work. So if you remember back when Swift 1.2 was released, there was a lot of code that was breaking. That's when if you had like dictionary literals that for like a, an NS notification or something where it's just uh, like any object in, in a string or something um, with your, you know, your key and your value can be anything. Then all of a sudden you had to say, you know, as exclamation mark in a string for your keys and or have like that type annotation on the dictionary literal. Right. There was a lot of churn there um, as, as part of this proposal. And I can't help but feel uh, reading through the lines, even though it's not uh, covered in the proposal, as best I can tell, um, as one of the motivations that probably one of the driving factors behind this was um, the lack of Objective-C runtime on Linux and the fact that uh, if any of you were writing cross-platform Darwin and Linux Swift in those very early days uh, after Swift was open sourced, you'll have noticed that um, bridging on Linux required to be a lot more explicit, I believe, because a lot of this implicit bridging uh, on Darwin relied on the uh, runtime capabilities of the Objective-C runtime. Yeah, uh, and even you know, like tangentially related to this is uh, all of the XC test issues where the way that XC test works uh, in Objective-C is that the runtime, like it introspects on those methods in your XC test case and um, and then we'll call those methods. Uh, but there is no Objective-C runtime on Linux. And so there's this big issue on CoreLib's XC test uh, where they were trying to find a good way to get that same functionality without requiring too much uh, boilerplate from developers. And at least for a while, what they had was you had to have uh, this array with all of the method names for all of your tests. And no, You still need that today. Right. Um, so that's that's also kind of another side effect of this this very real world problem that Apple is faced with saying that uh, well it's a massive effort to port the Objective C runtime which can't just be I mean they have the source and probably a lot of it could be made to be cross platform uh, but they probably run into legal issues there uh, probably the same reason why they didn't just open source the existing foundation where uh, they just can't um, make that code that was previously privately licensed uh, and just make it open source because they have 30 years of baggage on that, of code that was written over 30 years. They'd have to audit the whole thing to see, okay, well, which parts of this 
can actually be open source. And I'm aware that the Objective-C runtime um, is part of the open source package that Apple provides on opensource.apple.com. But there's a big jump, I think, between that and having uh, the exact same thing that's uh, that's published uh, as part of the chips with their OSs. Right. Um, and so they're faced with this challenge. They're, they're, they're saying, well, we can't port the entirety of this thing over to other platforms. What are some of the partial or other solutions that we have available. So going back to bridging, well, that's um, going with the least uh, most common denominator, right? Saying that, well, if bridging is explicit on Linux, maybe there's motivations for making it explicit on Darwin too. So I, I look back at this proposal and it's pitched in such a way that it's kind of going through all of these advantages for why explicit bridging is important. But as a Swift user, Having written a lot of code that had to go through this transition, I can't help but remember that this was a very tedious process um, and that uh, Swift code written after this proposal um, lost a lot of simplicity and conciseness by having that explicit bridging all over the place that uh, in some ways were a step backwards in language but in other ways may have been required to just align the Swift code that was being written on Linux and Darwin. Yeah, and so this proposal went through removing much of this implicit bridging. Um, and then what we saw were a lot of unintended side effects and this your code suddenly became less concise uh, more verbose and really just kind of ugly with the casting that you would now have to explicitly do. And so then some follow-up proposals came out of this. Um, and one of them was bridging Swift numeric types to NS number uh, and NS value, like when appropriate. Yeah. And, and really the behavior around this before the proposal was really quite confusing. Um, if you were using NS number, there were a handful of uh, types, especially the, the simpler, more common ones, things like int32, 864, that were uh, directly implicitly convertible to NS number. And then there were other types like uh, int8, uint8, um, and some other types like that that weren't directly convertible uh, to NS number. And so as a, as a Swift user, you had to understand a lot of the internal implementation details of how these were represented to know which int types were implicitly convertible uh, versus not. Uh, and even after explicit conversion, some of, some of these types uh, worked with as NS number and others didn't. Uh, so you really had this confusing behavior. Um, and so thankfully, after this proposal, it really kind of unified the whole uh, bridging concept, uh, and not just for integers, but also for NS value types, things like CG size, CG rect, et cetera. And, you know, the list goes on. There's like 20 or so types that are covered here. But it basically meant that um, as a Swift user, you didn't have to know as many of the internal implementation details. Uh, an int, or basically an NS number convertible type was convertible to NS number or an NS value representable type was convertible to an NS value. So it was a lot easier to reason about. You didn't have to know all these edge cases with, uh, okay, well, what's representable by uh, an LVM intrinsic and which of those can be bridged to NS number? Yeah. And so um, 
One quick correction. I actually uh, misspoke earlier about what led up to SD-139, the NS number and NS value bridging proposal. Uh, It was actually, there's one prior to that, uh, which was importing Objective-C ID as a Swift any type. Um, And that's what actually broke a lot of this existing behavior. Um, it's it's part of so, it. Um, yeah. It was broken before as well, except that before you'd get a compiler error uh, when you tried to cast oh, one of these uncastable right. types. Uh, and then you're, you're definitely right that the idea is any um, change had a massive impact on this because it it converted this problem from a compile time issue to a runtime issue where um, the idea is any meant that uh, this conversion was wasn't flagged at runtime, or sorry, wasn't flagged at compile time, was flagged at runtime as a crash. Um, so obviously making the matter much worse. Yeah, and um, w- one thing with the Objective-C objective ID as any uh, proposal, we actually ran into issues with this, uh, Ryan Nystrom and I working on IG ListKit. And uh, if you're not familiar with that framework, you can find it uh, on GitHub. But um, it's a collection view framework, and uh, we do some diffing on uh, model objects to uh, to update the collection view in, in an optimal way. But that proposal, so we have a protocol that your models have to conform to, and uh, before this proposal, um, an Objective-C protocol would have to be a class type. And uh, after this proposal, any Swift type, so even a Swift value type, could conform to this protocol and you could hand us from Swift, uh, give our framework, you know, an array of structs or enums. Uh, But that actually broke things for us because we rely on reference semantics for the diffing algorithm and and other components of the, the library. So this was marketed as... You know, it makes things easier because now you can use value types more uh, in Swift when you're interacting with Objective-C, which can be really valuable. But in some ways, it has this other unintended consequence where maybe your Objective-C code actually needs uh, reference semantics types. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is that that specific problem is actually solved if you're just using Swift, right? Where you can mark a protocol as class, uh, meaning that only reference types can conform to it. And unfortunately, uh, yeah, with the protocol defined in Objective-C, there's no way to specify that. Right. Um, so yeah, at least an interesting edge case, uh, did you how how did you end up working around this? Did you end up writing kind of a shim Swift protocol that's marked as class that if you're using IG List Kit from Swift, you have to conform to that protocol, or do you find another solution? Uh, no, actually, we we haven't. Um, so we had this issue open on GitHub with a long discussion, and um, we a comment that I wrote proposed using like a. Uh, pretty typical like box T class to just box up the value into a a reference type. Um, So clients would have to implement that on their own. So they'd kind of have to map um, their value types into these boxed reference types. Um, Yeah, we didn't really come up with a good solution um, because we also didn't want to, well, the bridging, uh, 
yeah, it no longer has like the NS object. Like even if you have NS object in the Objective C protocol, it still comes over as any. I, I'm right. pretty sure it so, does be- because I believe um, NS object is the basically the, the base protocol that all other Objective C protocols uh, even implicitly conform to. Really? So even if you don't have the angle brackets with NS object for a protocol, it still implicitly. Um, I think so. Okay. Now I'm, I'm I'm a bit fuzzy on this, but I I think that's the case basically because NS object is the base class, and therefore NS object the protocol is the base base protocol. Right. Um, right. I don't think there's any real way around that in the Objective C runtime, and therefore, um, based off off of that. Uh, when it's important to Swift, that requirement, because it's implicit, kind of just goes away. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, right. I might be making all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the moral of the story is that we did not have any solutions. So, like, if you're using that uh, framework, you just have to use uh, reference types, which isn't terrible. I mean, you can make your reference types final and immutable, and you essentially have the the same semantics. So. Right. But you get into this edge case, and there are actually quite a few of these when you're dealing with Swift and Opsi Interop, where the API alone, the type safety alone, um, the type system alone, I should say, isn't enough to infer proper API usage, right? Where there are mm. some um, implicit constraints that cannot be represented in the language uh, that... Um, or in the way that you're specifically using this collection of languages, Objective-C and Swift, um, where you kind of have to read the documentation, where it may be, right. you know, for, for users that, and let's be honest, none of us read the manual before trying something <laughs> out, um, you you might just think that it's sufficient or, or enough to to pass these Swift structs that do conform to the protocol because, hey, the type system lets you do it. It must be allowed. Uh, whereas in reality, when you're bridging these two worlds uh, and these these semantics aren't um, maintained, that uh, you run into these issues. And and that kind of briefly touches on um, a, a nice uh, deep dive that uh, Ola Begeman ran into the other day with his blog post on protocols have semantics. Right. Right. Where, um, say, the count property in a collection type has to be uh, – has to be calculable in constant time. Otherwise, it's not conforming to the collection type, um, right? And and this whole conversation stemmed out of you know, whether or not there should be a protocol that uh, exposes um, types that have init uh, as kind of a raw initializer. Um, and then Which this- would basically be almost everything if it has an empty initializer. It, exactly. It would be everything except non-user constructible types, basically. So types that need to be uh, kind of extracted out of another context, right? And mm-hmm. what comes to mind there is uh, NS managed object ID um, mm-hmm. conform to that, right? Where you can't create it directly. Uh, in Realm, we've got a handful of these types, things like results um, that uh, only make sense when they're actually provided by the greater realm context. You can't really create one right. in isolation and have it mean anything. Um, right. There's also some uh, UI collection view layout. Uh, I think it's UI collection view update is the name of the class where yeah. 
if you have a custom layout, it'll vend these objects to you, but there's no way for you to exactly them explicitly. Right. So, so basically vended types that don't make sense in being created in isolation. Another thing that comes to mind is multi-peer connectivity yep. has a handful of these non-constructible types. Um, so very interesting and useful uh, language construct. But um, yeah, d- kind of digressing a bit, going back to the proposal that was that was encouraging having a, uh, a protocol that uh, has an init type. Well, init doesn't exactly mean the same thing or have the same semantics depending on uh, the context, right? Uh, in some contexts, it can be much more expensive to init a type than others, right? If you compare right. uh, just calling init on a struct versus init on, um, uh, I don't know what comes to mind, like uh, NS file manager. No, that doesn't really make sense because those are cached. Uh, but you can think of a very expensive class to create that represents sure. uh, an underlying resource uh, right. or collection Maybe, of resources. Yeah, it might do some parsing or something. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah we're, we're digressing a bit there, but protocols have semantics and therefore... Um, you know that's that's one of the cases that you were you were hitting in this Objective C provided protocol. Yeah, um, exactly. That yeah it must be a class, but you can't specify that from Objective C. Right. Uh, another big change uh, to Swift was the error handling that was introduced in I think Swift 2.0, and it was uh, Swift's answer to the Objective C convention of passing an NS error pointer into a function and then having like a bool return value uh, or a nullable return value. That's right. Um, which, you know, I never really gave that pattern much thought, but it is actually kind of terrible because no one ever handles errors or they don't handle it properly or they don't actually, they never propagate it or they propagate it incorrectly yeah. up the chain well so th- that's not even the the end of why it's terrible um <laughs> a, a big reason why uh the coco apis have follow that that pattern is dates back to pre-arc days where you couldn't mm. guarantee the initialization value of uh of a of a value of of a reference rather uh and so checking to see if uh the returned or the if the ns error um uh, pointed to nil after uh, passing it as as a reference to um, as an NS error pointer wasn't sufficient to tell if it was um, if it had been populated or not right so that's where the boolean return value came in where you basically um, had had two ways you had an unreliable way to check if the NS error right. had been populated and then you had the reliable one which is returning uh, yes or no but after arc. That wasn't necessary because you had guaranteed initialization semantics for, for NS error. And so after ARC, returning yes or no was entirely superfluous. Uh, and you could tell um, whether or not an NS error had been populated by, by checking its contents after passing it in. Uh, but unfortunately, as historical baggage, um, it, mm-hmm. that convention was, was preserved. And it's something that... Um, that uh, actually we we tried kind of working around or, or moving on from that convention mm-hmm. uh, with some of our APIs at Realm in, in our early days and got pushback from the community immediately uh, with good reason because it wasn't conventional. Uh, even though there was no technical reason to do it, um, there was still this kind of idiom, this convention 
that uh, people expected. And so uh, we click, quickly reverted those APIs to follow the convention. Right. And I mean, there's another inconsistency with those APIs as well. Uh, they all vary and you need to read the docs for each one. But sometimes uh, you you could have situations where it returns yes and the NS error is populated. So you could have something, uh, some operation, it would succeed, but there was some other um, kind of tangential error that occurred. That's right. Maybe it doesn't matter and you can still continue and maybe you don't even need to show an error to the user, but you could have uh, that situation. Right. And so treating NS error more as of a just um, generic messaging uh, payload rather than an error itself, right. uh, where it's the, the message is more informational than it is um, uh, catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So going back to um, Swift 2 and treating NS error uh, as, as kind of a Swift error type, you want to keep going on that? Yeah, so uh, this proposal, uh, 112 by Doug Greger, yeah, so so this proposal basically uh, proposed a way to interact with Objective-C. There was still, um, so even after Swift had its new error handling model, it wasn't bridged. And so you'd have like this error handling mechanism in Swift where you uh, annotate your method with throws and then you have to have this try catch uh, on the call site side. But then every time you were interacting with Objective-C, you'd still have to pass in this NS error pointer and it was really awkward from Swift. And so this proposal bridges that so that that NS error API in Objective-C now maps to a throwing function uh, in Swift. So it definitely, it, it cleaned up all of this code and made uh, everything just like much nicer. It introduced the uh, error protocol as well um, and had NS error conform to that, I think, by default and improve that that entire experience. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was definitely a, a step forward in, um, in better bridging. Um, yeah, I'm not sure there's necessarily more to say on that, but there, there's a few other uh, topics, especially in recent times, um, where importing Objective-C lightweight generics has been improved in in the bridging, and this ties into uh, some of the interop as well. Um, but it does have some impact on on the runtime bridging concept, um, and so that def- definitely made Swift interop with Objective-C a lot more pleasing and and flexible. Yeah, in some ways. Uh, I actually had code that broke because of that proposal. Um, I was uh, subclassing, I can't remember. I think, no, I had um, like an NS cache uh, extension where I had typed uh, subscripts, basically. Um, And then all of that broke once that change was made. And I understand why, but it's just like, it's unfortunate because those Objective-C generics are lightweight generics. They're not actually represented at runtime in the Objective-C runtime. Um, and so the reason you can't actually make use of lightweight generics uh, from Swift is because of that. There's no representation. This is just bolted on to the top of Objective-C to give you a little bit of compiler safety Um uh, statically at compile time, but there's really there's no runtime 
semantics or no runtime protection at all. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and the fact that these lightweight generics were exposed in Swift meant that if you were doing anything else generic related on top of the previous uh, kind of type erased um, versions, that sometimes those were incompatible. And, and not only that, and so that's probably what you hit with your NS cache extensions, right. was that you had uh, either like some other type that it was generic on, or you're doing things that relied on it being uh, a full generic, a uh, heavyweight generic, if you will. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, there, and then there's a handful of bugs as well that uh, that we definitely ran into um, as well. But, uh, you know, bugs will happen no matter what. You know, the, I think the idea here was that in a lot of cases, uh, importing Objective-C generics would from Swift would be a, a little better. And then there's one more um, Swift Evolution uh, proposal that'd be good to cover here, uh, probably as a last as a last topic, uh, and that's a work in progress proposal by Doug Greger that's been uh, going around the last few weeks and even gathering um, input and feedback from the Swift core team. Even though this isn't an official review or, or an official proposal, it's still worth um, diving into because it probably will surface up uh, pretty shortly. Do you want to go over that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this very likely will be. Uh, a full-fledged proposal. I always feel like, you know, when uh, a core team member uh, drafts a proposal, you know, when someone from the community drafts it, it may just like fizzle out and not actually ever come up for a review or get like an actual SE number. Uh, I feel like anytime a core team member does this, it will definitely go through. And it's more of like a formality in some cases where I think the core team is absolutely behind this and they want to push it forward, but they're just kind of going through the formal right. process. But basically uh, with this proposal, you know, currently you can add the at obc uh, annotation to your classes and their members. And this basically just makes all of that more strict. So there's currently a number of cases where this is happening implicitly. And now all of this is going to have to be much more explicit. So just like with the other proposals we've talked about so far in this episode, uh, where we're moving from this implicit and now we have to like explicitly cast to in a string or in a dictionary or something. Now you're having to explicitly annotate uh, the at obsi. Yeah, there's um, so, yeah, that's that's definitely part of it. Another part of it is um, the. Uh, implicit inference that dynamic uh, infers ad opsi because currently the only way to have uh, to enforce dynamic uh, dispatch behavior is by using the Objective C runtime. And um, I know of one particular library that will be massively affected by this, where uh, Realm model properties um, require to be at dynamic, but really that's that's kind of a loose, um, or it's an indirect requirement where the requirement be that it be representable in Objective-C. Uh, and I suspect that um, a lot of IG list kit uh, behavior also relies on this. Um, if some of the library is written in Objective-C and it needs to deal with uh, some members on types that conform to the to the protocol that uh, that it be required to be representable in Objective C. Actually, if you generalize this, I suspect that a lot of code that's written in Objective C that 
handles Swift types probably requires not just dynamic, but ad she. So this has the potential of being um, a pretty impactful change where it'll it'll break a lot of existing code. Uh, and hopefully there's there's a good migration path uh, for people using dynamic where they should be using at obshi and the compiler can hopefully detect uh, that they actually require at obshi behavior. Right. The other big thing is uh, NS object derived classes will no longer infer uh, at obshi for their members. Right. So if you have that NS object subclass um, in some function, you have to explicitly annotate at obc uh to expose that right uh, so i guess you get um uh, i guess that allows the swift compiler to do uh more optimizations on that code implicitly unless you explicitly opt out of that and opt into objective c runtime that's behavior. right but it's not strictly a matter of optimization it's a matter of compatibility and interop as well right, right. where um it's not like uh like like this change will um, not have an impact and strictly just allow further opera- uh, optimizations. It's actually that um, those optimizations come at a cost. It, it comes at, at the trade-off of compatibility with a lot of Objective-C. Right. In general, I think this, is, this proposal is probably going in the right direction and generally a good thing for the language moving forward, especially when you consider that Objective-C over time will just lose... Uh, it'll yeah, it'll be less and less important over time for Swift yeah, yeah. to interop well with Objective C, or at least invisibly and uh, and easily. Right. Um, but in the short term, you know, I, there's no denying that this will have major breaking implications. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a quick note: this proposal is targeted for Swift four, um, and so that's when those changes would land. Um, yeah, I think there's a very clear trend, uh, even looking at pre-open source Swift, toward making this uh, bridging with Objective-C uh, more and more strict. Yeah, bridging with Objective-C and bridging in general uh, stricter, more explicit, and um, probably allowing for more optimizations as well uh, along that context. Um, so I, I think... Generally, that's that's the theme of what we wanted to cover with bridging in this episode was that uh, there's been a lot of back and forth with more explicit, more implicit uh, kind of swaying of the pendulum and that the steady state seems to be uh, leaning a little bit more on the explicit side than it. Yeah. And uh, a final note on this is, you know, we this this feature is called bridging, which kind of implies like a two-way path here, but really um, the way I view it and the way it works in practice most of the time is that it's really just a one-way bridge. It's from Objective-C into Swift, uh, almost always. Um, While we can use Swift from Objective-C, there's very little effort put forth there by the core team to make that um, a good or worthwhile experience. For example, all of Swift's value types, structs, and enums uh, are not uh, bridged into Objective-C because uh, they can't be represented in Objective-C or uh, generics, um, uh, generic classes in Swift can't be bridged. Maybe you can do that with some special annotations or 
there's work, all sorts of hacks and workarounds that that you can do there. But I think this is really the topic for for a future episode. If we sure. talk about Objective C interop, uh, that can be a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah, for sure. All right, Jesse, I think that's it for today. Uh, yeah, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, Jesse underscore Squires. And on Twitter, I'm at SimJP. Uh, so see you next time.